Hey, everybody. Wynn Claybaugh here. Welcome to this wonderful issue of Masters. And let me tell you what happened here. I was sitting in the audience, and it's rare that I sit in an audience with the speaker on stage. Usually, I'm backstage. Uh, I'm someplace else. I'm the speaker who's getting ready to be announced. But this time, somebody said, you need to go sit in the audience. And so I did. And this man that I'm going to interview here today, within 30 seconds, captured not just my, my ears and my thoughts, but my, my heart. And I immediately after you came off stage, I think I was probably the first person that you saw backstage because I had to get back there. I had to meet you. I had to ask you for a thousand favors. And you said yes to all of them, not knowing who I was. Uh, and that alone, just that story alone, in my mind, makes you so qualified gives you credibility for the brilliant message that you're going to send with our listeners today. So everybody, please welcome Charlie Engel to Masters. Wynn, thank you so much, man. I remember that too. And what I took away from that first time we met each other was just your energy. You know, I'm a people person and I'm naturally attracted to certain people. And just speaking to you in the first couple of minutes uh, backstage uh, let me know right away that we were going to be friends uh, forever. And uh, the only regret I have today is that we're not doing this interview in person. But hopefully that's going to happen. It'll happen soon enough. Well, thanks, Charlie. I, I need to read this so people get a glimpse, and it's a small glimpse of who you are. And then they're going to get to know you and your spirit and your message as we go through this interview. Uh, but Charlie Engel is a global ultra-endurance athlete and the founder of the 5.8 Global Adventure Series, which we're going to talk about. Charlie's athletic ability was profiled in the film Running the Sahara, which was narrated by Matt Damon. Wasn't he a producer on that documentary as well? He was. Yeah, he executive produced also. Jeez. Congratulations on that. It's nice to get the attention of people who can then catapult you into a whole other universe. So the documentary highlighted his historic record-setting journey across the world's largest desert. You guys listen to this. Running more than two marathons a day for 111 consecutive days for a total of 4,500 miles. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm exhausted just reading it. Uh, After crossing the Sahara and seeing the global water crises firsthand, Charlie teamed up with Matt Damon to create H2O Africa, which we're going to talk about, this global humanitarian organization. Congratulations on that. Charlie's memoir, Running Man, became a bestseller shortly after it was published in 2016. Just the the message that you have because of facing demons, overcoming impossible odds, keeping your sense of humor which we want to talk about that. How do you have humor when you're running two marathons a day in the Sahara Desert? I don't know how you do that. Uh, His motivation to run and tackle extreme adventures stems from his battle with addiction to drugs and alcohol. The the first story that you told on stage, and I, I told people, maybe I share this with you, I told people that you are one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. Seriously, when you stood on that stage, I was hanging on the edge of every single word as you talk through that story of going to Australia and the experience that you had sort of by accident, you were in the middle of a race and, and then what you gained from that and then just taking on more and more, which we're going to get into. 
I also want to talk about your recovery through uh, addiction to drugs and alcohol because that's a powerful message in itself. Don't you, every single year on the anniversary of your sobriety, don't you run a, a little marathon around the, the block where the recovery center was? T- tell us about that really quickly before I continue in with your, your bio. Yeah, I do. Actually, I'm, I'm proud to say that uh, assuming I make it to July sober, uh, I'll have 28 years clean and sober. And so what I do every year is I run the same number of hours to coincide to the number of years I have. So this year in July, I'll actually run for 28 consecutive hours. And uh, last year at 27, I covered about 118 miles, I think. So uh, the best part of it, though, is that I have about last year I had 400 people, almost all of them clean and sober folks, come out to run at least one three mile loop with me around this treatment center. And so it's a very inclusive thing. And I, I'm hoping by the end of July, you know, we'll be in a place where uh, enough of us can actually be in the same place together that we can have a have a little party. So a little Jeez. sober party. That's amazing. <laughs> Let's see. You have been featured in the New York Times, National Geographic Weekend, Outside Runner's World, All Things Considered, Men's Journal. You've been on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. You're a dynamic speaker, as I've shared, incredible speaker. You have given keynotes at the Boston Marathon, Google, National Geographic Society, NATO, United Nations. Oh, yeah, United Nations. I saw you there. Remember that? No, I wasn't. <laughs> I do. <laughs> <laughs> we, we really could go on and on, but I think people get a, a picture of who this incredible man is and, and what you put yourself through, all not only for the lessons that you need to gain, what keeps you on track, what keeps you driven and motivated, what keeps you sober and clean, but also you then share those life lessons on such a large stage and For that, I'm so, so grateful and so glad that you're a part of this. So let's jump into this. Can can we just kind of go back to that that first story of of how you became a runner? Yeah, well, and I just want to say before we start on this that I'm grateful for your amazing compliments. Coming from a storyteller like you uh, on stage, uh, it's a high compliment to have you say that about me. And, And I think it does it does boil down to the fact that we both understand the value of storytelling. You know, a lot of people get on stage and they, they want to educate people or they want to somehow change their mind about something. And that's not my job. You know, my job is to get up there and just tell my story and allow each person in the audience to uh, lay their own life story over that and figure out what meaning they might find in it. And for the, you know, or it may just be some entertainment, but when you look back at when I look back at where I began, um, you know, my sobriety is really the, I think, the starting point for everything. And, and I'll skip to that story you heard me tell on stage. You know, I was 29 years old and I had been a really hardcore drug addict for 10 years at that point. And I had tried everything to quit. I mean, it was a miserable life, although I was like the top salesman at my company and I was. I was an overachiever on one hand so that I could justify my really bad behavior on the other hand. And I finally reached the point where my first son was born 
And I knew that I didn't want to be this same addict while I had, you know, a son in the world and I wanted to change. And I'd been to treatment, I'd gone to meetings, I'd been to church, I'd, you know, tried a shaman, I'd, <laughs> you name it, you know, I, I tried uh, to find any way I could to quit, but uh, I just knew that my son was going to change all that for me. And a couple months after his birth, things were going well, and inexplicably, I, I found myself driving to the worst neighborhood in town, and I spent six days you know, smoking crack and drinking. And, you know, that binge ended with the police going through my car and me sitting on the ground outside of a, a dumpy little motel room. And, you know, watching the police search my car and there's bullet holes in the car that were put there by somebody, you know, actually shooting at me. And, you know, this policeman turns and looks at me and he's shaking his head. And he's holding this little glass pipe that he found under my seat in the car. And, you know, all I could think was, uh, you know, any rational person would have been, oh my God, I'm in some serious trouble. And all I could think was, you know, so that's where that was. You know, I've, I spent like an hour looking for that thing, you know, and I wonder if there's anything left in there. I mean, it was just such like sick thinking because I was sick. And the reason that was such a pivotal moment is it was the first time in my life that I really understood nobody else was coming to save me. Like my son couldn't save me. No other person, no job, no spouse, no nothing was going to save me until I was ready to save myself. And I went to an AA meeting that night, the first one I ever went to that like I, I went because I wanted help. And I got up the next morning and I put on my running shoes and I ran a few miles. And and I did those two things for the next three straight years. Every single day, I went to a meeting and I ran every day. And I slowly began to build a life for myself and, and understand the value of, of sticking to something, of making a change and, and understanding that the change can't just be psychological. It can't just be saying, I'm going to do this. I had to put action behind my thoughts. And, you know, and I, I became a runner in that three years. That's just amazing. So this is happening and there's an infant at home. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, I feel lucky that I didn't die, you know, that, that night and that I've now spent t today as we're doing this interview, today is my son's 28th birthday. Is and, it really? <laughs> and uh, I was just talking to him on the phone and, you know, what a gift to be able to like have a conversation. And he's, he's had his own struggles, you know? I, I gave him my genetics and, you know, so he's now a few years clean and sober himself. And we were just marveling over, even in the midst of the challenges we have in the world right now, we were marveling over the love we have for each other and the understanding of how lucky we are. And, and our lives aren't easy, you know? He's, he just got his license back after, you know, not having it for like six years. And I mean, he, you know, he, he had to earn his way back into where he is right now. And he, and he's a daily reminder for me of the gifts and rewards that come from staying sober. And during those three years, for me, not only was I running every day, but I actually ran 30 or so marathons during that three years. And so like I started entering every race I could. And clearly I had that whole like addiction thing under control, right? 30 marathons in three years. 
And people ask me sometimes, and I, I think a lot of your listeners will think the same thing because when you're to become good at something, there has to be a certain amount of obsession. I mean, you and I have talked about this some before. I think you understand your own nature and like you didn't become who you are and, and running this huge organization without having a certain amount of obsession or even addictive qualities. Like you, you have to have some of that as part of you. So I consider myself very lucky to be an addict. It's just that now, instead of putting my energy toward drugs and alcohol, I put it towards things that can not only help me, but hopefully help other people. And I think that's what I learned in those three years is that I ran sort of like an addict in a way. And sometimes people would say, didn't you just switch addictions? And, you know, and I, and I realized that addiction is all about hiding. It's about having no feelings. And when I run, I am like the ultimate of who I actually am capable of being. I feel everything. There's no hiding when you're running a hundred miles. Like, I'm going to feel absolutely everything, good feelings, bad feelings, why did I do this again feelings, <laughs> and that's why I do it, is so that I can have those really intense feelings, because as an addict, if I got close to one of those feelings, I had a drink or I took a drug, because I wasn't capable of dealing with those feelings, so hmm. life as a runner is a hell of a lot better than life as an addict. You know, not that this is a, an interview only about addiction and recovery, although that's your story. And it's the story of a lot of people listening to this. Uh, I've been clean off of drugs for 18 years. I was talking to a friend of mine who's been uh, clean about 10 years and we talk almost on a, on a daily basis. There's like three different people that I connect with on a regular basis, all related to supporting each other in our sobriety and recovery. And he said that he feels like his sobriety is his uh, superpower. Right. That's his superpower. It's like his secret superpower yeah. that makes him an incredible dad, an incredible husband, incredible passion and drive in business and in other things that he does in life. And that's what you were saying. You know, that the fact that somebody would say, and I get this because I heard it too. Oh, you just switched from one addiction to another addiction. You know, so what's the point? You know, you're, you're still not healthy. And I love your answer to that, that, that addiction doing drugs is about secrecy and hiding. And yet what you are now putting your passion and drive in is something that actually not only serves you in a healthy manner, but serves the planet because you have stories to tell because of that. Well, a lot of times when somebody says that to us, you know, I recognize, and I know you do too, there's a little bit of a jab in there. Like they're trying to do what people will do at times. They're trying to find a way to take you down a notch, you know, and to criticize the lifestyle that you're leading. And I, you know, I always evaluate my life, you know, am I there for the people that I love and who love me? Am I perfect in that way? Of course not. Nobody is. But you know, can I find my car after a long run? <laughs> yes, I can. Whereas, you know, after a two-day or three-day drinking binge, sometimes I, it took me a week to find my car. You know, I, I'm not out there doing damage in the world. And, you know, I always say, even to all my sober friends, and I think most of them agree, like if I could take a, a magic pill right now that would uh, make me not be an addict any longer, and I could somehow like, quote unquote, drink like a normal person or something. I would not in a million years do that. 
because I would be worried, as you said, that I would give up my superpower. Like, why would I want to give up this drive that I have, this determination, this persistence? I mean, I have passion for the things that I do and the people that I love and care for, and they know that. And, you know, it's never my job to tell anybody else how to get sober, how to become a runner, how to be anything. That's not my job. My job, as I see it, or my my gift, I hope, is that I'm capable of telling my own story in a way that says to people, okay, here's how I did it. You have to figure out how you're going to do it. But if I can do it, then anyone can. Yesterday, I was interviewing a man by the name of Alvin Law, who was born without any arms. And so I mean, his story is just incredible, what he's accomplished. And he plays the drums, wow. plays the piano with his feet. I mean, has millions and millions of views and appearances and incredible life. But I asked them that same question. I asked them the question, if you could take a magic pill today that would now give you arms, would you take that magic pill? What do you think his answer was? Of course not. Why would he want to be average? He's now like way up here above average. (laughs) And I like that you said that, that if you could take that magic pill, why would you? I had a friend recently say to me that she has been 10 years sober, but only two years into recovery. And what I got from that was even though she wasn't drinking or using, she still wasn't doing the work until two years ago. And, and again, not that this is about recovery and addiction, but just uh, on a podcast earlier in a classroom earlier this morning, somebody asked the question, well, I want to be successful, but I come from a, a small town. Like that was, I said, rip off that label. That's the excuse. And people have all kinds of labels that they stick on them. I'm a woman, right? I'm Latina. You know, I'm gay. I'm a recovering addict. And therefore, I'm less than and I can only achieve so much. You've already answered it, but what's your immediate answer to them? Yeah, I mean, that is, you know, those limitations are... Um, They're basically like salve on a wound. Like that person is considering that what... Maybe their handicap, if you will, which is a a ridiculous way to phrase it, but they're viewing their circumstance as some sort of a handicap. And it's a way to appease themselves, in my view, and I've done it too, to say that, well, you know, I just started off with this disadvantage, therefore, you know, I can't, there's only so much that I can actually achieve starting from where I started. And that's a, it's a way that we all kind of make ourselves feel a little better if we haven't made, you know, a million dollars or we haven't achieved something that we thought when we were younger, we were going to achieve. I always make the joke now, (laughs) I'm 57 years old and I'm like, a few years ago, it dawned on me that I'm way too old to actually be rich when I'm young. Because, you know, when we're young, we think that, you know, I, at least me, when I was 25 and I was an addict and like, you know, but I was the number one Toyota salesman in the country when I was 25. And like, I had these visions that, you know, I was going to be rich. And to me, the only definition of rich was money in the bank. That was the only definition I had for the word rich because I had no understanding or comprehension of what true wealth is. Wealth meaning friends and love and, you know, partnerships and people that I could really count on and all of that. And I mean, I, you know, now I have an abundance 
of not just love from individuals, but actually love from entire communities. Like my running community is made up of, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people. My sober community is made up of tens of thousands of people. And, you know, we understand inherently that we share this common gift and we share this common goal. And there is no definition of what that success looks like except staying sober. You know, I, I know that if I ever made the terrible decision to not be a sober person anymore, I, I know exactly where that would lead me. And, you know, there is, no, there is no benefit to that. There's nothing about that that's attractive. There's no, it would have meant that for some reason I've decided to die. And I, I, I can't imagine any circumstance that would make me feel that way today. And I, I just encourage people who think they may have started with some handicap just to look at the examples of, of people that they admire and follow in their footsteps, man. That's what I do. That's what I've done my whole life. Yeah, part of my uh, addictive behavior, so to speak, is that I, I follow those people. Like I need to have friends who are deaf. I need to have friends who don't have arms. I need to have friends who have lost limbs by stepping on a bomb in Afghanistan because they remind me of, wow, I have four limbs here. I have one eye, only one eye. This one doesn't work, but that's okay, right? I mean, I'm blessed and I need those constant reminders to keep myself on track. So I need these extreme stories because that's what motivates me. It drives me. Well, I think, and, and I know you well enough to know what the answer to this is. You know, uh, you're interviewing me, but I'm going to ask you a question. You know, if you, you know, if you lost both your arms tomorrow, if some, some accident happened or something happened, you know, would you find a way forward? Oh, of course I would. And I know exactly how I would do it. I would do it because I already have those relationships with people who have been through extreme difficulties and challenges And I've been learning from them. I've humbled myself to be their student, even to this day, and oftentimes without the challenge. You know, know, we have to fill up this reservoir before there's a need to fill it up. Some people wait till they're completely dry and empty and depleted before they then go and seek that information and seek those relationships. And I just know I've learned from past experiences. I need those people in my life all the time, even when things are going great. Well, and it's funny, you mentioned your friend who's been, you know, sober or drive is probably a better word for 10 years, but really only work on a program for a couple of years. And, and I recognize in myself sometimes that I'm like, I am, I'm almost 28 years, you know, clean and sober without, you know, a drug or, a, or alcohol going into my system. That does not mean that I haven't spent long periods of time either miserable or being an asshole. Because, you know, it's not like, that's not like that, you know, magically because I don't drink anymore or do drugs that I don't treat people poorly sometimes or, uh, you know, that I don't make mistakes. But the difference is the drunk me made excuses about my behavior. The sober me much more quickly recognizes my behave, my bad behavior especially, and tries to correct the situation and hopefully cuts myself some slack to realize I can't be perfect. I don't have to be perfect. That's not the goal. Perfection's not the goal. It is just progress. You know, we have all these cliche sayings in recovery and they're cliches because they work. 
<laughs> and, right. you know, one day at a time and all of those. I mean, they really do work. And I, I think all of us get caught up in this idea sometimes of trying to manage the whole of our lives in front of us. And, and especially in this time period we're in these days where there's a lot of uncertainty, there's this desire to want to see what our life is going to look like a month or a year or five years from now. And now is the time more than ever in, in our existence to just focus on what's right in front of us. Like, just do your best today and get to tomorrow and tomorrow will bring its own challenges and do your best tomorrow and, and not get caught up in this uh, cycle that just never ends of, uh, I love the word catastrophizing, right? Like where we, everything is terrible and it's never going to be good again. And all of that worry is just such a waste of energy because we can't control it. We can only control what we're doing right now. You mentioned those cliches that maybe are, are part of a 12-step program. But the good news is you don't have to become a drug addict being pulled over by the police, finding a, a glass vial under your car seat to learn the lessons that you're going to share with us. You know, experience is a great teacher, but let's learn from other people's experiences. You know, again, I don't want to have to uh, have a bout with cancer to learn what my, my friends who have recovered from cancer those incredible people are teaching me about what they learn by going through that experience. You know, right now, as we record this, uh, this is May of 2020. So currently we're all still quarantined. I know people are going to be listening to this in years from now, but it applies to what we're going through right now, but it just applies in general in life. And you say a quote from you, what happens to us isn't nearly as important as what we do about it. What do you mean by that? Man, that, that lesson that I learned, you know, I've learned it throughout my life, but certainly uh, more so since I got sober. I'll give you a story from the Sahara. So again, the Sahara Desert was an interesting idea. And at that point, I was a producer for a show called Extreme Makeover Home Edition for many years, a television producer. And, and so I got a chance to meet people who had amazing challenges in their lives. And we built great houses for them. And it was a lot of fun. And it was during that time period that um, I met a director named James Mall, and he ended up being the director of my film, Running the Sahara. And I, I presented this idea because I just had it for a while. I said, look, man, I want to be the first person to ever run all the way across the Sahara Desert. And firsts in the adventure world are really hard to come by. And, and I recognize, too, that some of that's tied up in ego. You know, I wanted to do something that had never been done. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's no, I don't need to apologize for wanting to, to do something that had never been done before. But I also knew that the physical part would be hard, but it was the cultural experience that I was really hungering for. This opportunity to cross the world's biggest desert and meet people from one end to the other, from Senegal all the way across Mauritania, Mali, Niger, Libya, and Egypt. And this idea of immersing myself in other people's culture was really appealing to me. And so you know how it is. Just so many people listening to this are, have started their own business, right? Because pretty much everybody in your industry at some point or another essentially is their own business. <laughs> yeah. And so that's what I was doing, really. I actually started my own business, and I was going to run across the Sahara Desert. And 
every single day, you know, before the expedition, I had these grand ideas about how it was all going to go. And I'd written down the plan, the perfect plan, right? Because you got to have a plan. So I'm writing down the plan and, and all, you know, I get closer to the day and finally we get out there to the Sahara and I'm, I'm looking at my team surrounding me. And I do have two other runners who are going to do this crazy thing with me. And I'm, I'm watching everybody so excited and we're looking at maps and we're just all fired up. And all I can think is, you know, I've suckered all these people out here to the Sahara desert, you know, and we're all going to die. <laughs> like, you know, cause there's no playbook. I don't know how to do this. Like I, you know, everyone believes in me and they're looking at me to lead them. And I felt that pressure and, we started running and it was 140 degrees every single day. Two of my crew people quit in the first week. We got lost in sandstorms. We ran out of food and water. My two running teammates, you know, within five days were both on IVs every day because they were so dehydrated and couldn't catch up. So the point is, I've been planning this thing for a year and and seven days into it, it had completely gone to hell. And it looked like it was going to be the world's shortest big expedition. And I realized at that moment that I was going about this all wrong. Like I was looking at this expedition, dreaming of the day that I would put my feet in the Red Sea, you know, 4,500 miles away. That was my vision quest, right? But I forgot that the only miles I could run were the miles that were right in front of me. Like I couldn't run through Libya while I was still in Mali, right? I had to focus on what was right in front of me. So on day eight, I got up that morning and, and all I focused on was running a marathon that morning. And when I got to lunch, I took a break, I ate, I took a short nap, I got up and all I focused on the afternoon was running a second marathon. And I got to dinner that night and put my little foam mat on the ground. And I, you know, I stared up at a billion stars in the sky because there wasn't an electric light within 500 miles. And I just gave thanks for the opportunity to be out there suffering and miserable and alive instead of, you know, dead in the parking lot of some crack house, you know, years earlier. And it's that perspective that got me across the desert. And one day at a time, I got up and did that same routine every single day. And before I know it, I was on the other side of the Sahara Desert, putting my feet in the Red Sea. Hmm. Whew. That's powerful. It's the only way we get there, man. You know, and, and I don't want people now to lose sight of the fact that, you know, all that matters is what we're doing today. And, and it's all about how we react to what's happening, you know, not about, you know, making some huge proclamation. You know, it's, it's just digging in, staying focused and not giving up. Tell, tell us, because <laughs> I'm curious. Of course, we all want to see the film, the documentary, but tell us how did the story end up? Yeah, so, you know, we made it 4,500 miles, and I ran two marathons a day for almost, you know, for 111 consecutive days without a day off. It wasn't pretty. You know, if you ever see the film, it's not like it was all <laughs> awesome, you know, very much like a business owner. You know, I yelled at my employees. You know, I, I wasn't easy on people sometimes, and 
I always love this funny story. Um, the film actually debuted at the Toronto Film Festival, you know, the year after completion. And one of the investors in the film was Mia Hamm. And Mia Hamm, the famous soccer player, you know, the women's soccer player from the national team. And she runs up to me after the film and after seeing it for the first time in Toronto. And she, she actually grabs me by both of my shoulders and she shakes me and she looks at me and she's like, I understand. I was the asshole on my team too. And, you know, because you know, the, the film makes it sort of appear that I sort of spent all my time yelling at people. But the fact of the matter is there does have to be somebody pushing things forward, even when things are at their darkest. And the easiest thing to ever do is to quit. And, you know, my teammates both tried to quit multiple times while we were in the Sahara. And, you know, I finally reached a place where I did even say, you know, fine, quit. But I'm, you know, I'm taking that camel over there and this box of Snickers bars and I'm going to keep going until I can't go any farther. And if the day comes when I'm either not allowed to continue or I can't continue, then I can live with that. Like I can go home and be satisfied I did all that I could. But I also want to say too, uh, just briefly that, you know, while the physical mission was a really big deal, Matt and I, along with some other folks, created H2O Africa, which you mentioned at the beginning. And I think the beauty of that is that we recognized that there was good that we could do while also doing something we were passionate about. What were you witnessing? You said you, you witnessed firsthand this, this water crisis. What were you seeing? Yeah. Oh, God, man, it still hits me. It hits me hard even today because I can't imagine what life is like there today. But um, a year before the expedition, I took a scouting trip. So I actually visited some of these places along the way. And that's when I realized, I mean, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that the desert, the world's largest desert, probably has a need for water. But it's like those things you see on television, right? You see that, you know, a billion people don't have access to clean water. And that's, while it strikes you in a certain way, statistics are deceiving. So when I went there and I met, you know, the nine-year-old little girl in person who had to walk six miles each way every single day just to have clean water for she and her family, that's what made an impact. And so we decided that together we would start H2O Africa without any idea what was going to come of it. But I just knew that I needed to do something to try to make a difference. And after the completion of the expedition, I actually raised $6 million personally for H2O Africa. And it was at that point that we decided, you know, we weren't going to be administrators. I'm not meant for a desk job. And... So we joined with another group called Water Partners, and together we formed Water.org, which, you know, if you, anybody pays attention to this these days, Water.org is the world's biggest clean water nonprofit, and you'll see Matt Damon very often doing commercials like for Stella Artois, they have a big deal, but I mean, we surpassed $1.3 billion in funding last year. And there are millions of people on the planet right now who have access to clean water because I had this idiotic, um, crazy idea that running across the Sahara Desert was a good idea. And, and, and that's why I always encourage people, man, you don't know what's going to come out of something 
And I'm no, I think I'm a decent human being, but I'm not like some philanthropist. Like it was almost like by chance, but I think that's the way we all are. We sort of fumble our way through live, our lives. And if we have the right attitude though, and we view an opportunity as a, as a chance to help somebody else, that will lead to good things in our lives, period. And you don't know what the outcome is going to be, but if you put forth your greatest effort, it'll lead to something great. It's funny that you even mentioned clean water and how we can take something like that for granted. So while we're going through a hardship, I don't know about you, but I need, I need a lot of help. And how I get that help is by I make my own list. So look, I'm going to show you. You guys can't see this, but I'm showing Charlie right now. This is a, a list. And look, it says clean water. Yeah. Meaning what I choose to focus on, because when I'm thinking about my own problems so much, and right now, again, during this pandemic, people are thinking about their own problems. And yes, they're very, very serious for a lot of people. But when I'm thinking of my, my own problems, I stay stuck in them. But when I step outside of my drama and I work on a different list that I could choose to focus on, and one of the things that I've put on my list was clean water because I counted there are 12 faucets in my house where I can go turn on the faucet and what comes out clean drinkable water compared to that six-year-old little girl that you mentioned uh, that has to walk hours and hours a day to fetch water and sometimes what they're fetching is not clean water it's contaminated water that they then bring home for their families to eat and what do they say? 4,000 little kids die every single day because of very preventable diseases, waterborne diseases. And so, yeah, wow. Puts it in perspective, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it's really service is the key. Service is the key to everything. You know, you don't have to be some goody two-shoes, philanthropist, uh, save the world, whatever. It's just that, you know, I, I love this saying, and I use it quite often in my talks, where I say to keep it, you have to give it away. And whatever it is, whatever your gift is, you know, because everybody's got one. It's, you know, it's, uh, it's the ability to teach others or it might, be, it might be your bank account, you know, whatever it is. But whatever you have, if you're not giving some of that away to other folks, what are you doing? I mean, what are you saving it for? And I, I love the example. And my first sponsor in AAX, he taught me this years ago because the, <laughs> the first thing he said to me, yeah, because I was at a loss. I'm like, how, how am I going to get sober? I've been trying to do this for 10 years. Like, how is this going to happen? He said, well, the first step is you're going to go over there to that coffee maker and you're going to make coffee. And I looked at him like, what are you talking about, man? How is that going to, how is that going to help me? And, you know, and it took me a while to understand that it wasn't about making the coffee. It was about being of service to others and doing something, uh, the simplest act like showing up to an AA meeting 15 minutes early and making the coffee changed everything for me because it, it humbled me and it made me realize how good it felt just to do that simple thing for the other people that would be attending that meeting. And, you know, right now I, I am a guy that wants, I think very much like you and a lot of people listening, I would love to be able to fix everything right now, all the hardship that we're facing, and, but I can't. But what I can do is when I'm presented with opportunities to help somebody, I can choose to help them, whatever that means and in whatever way. And those things just appear to us every single day, those opportunities. And, 
And you just have to find a way to make the effort and see if you can't make somebody else's life a little bit better. And the benefit comes back to us a million times over. I mean, it's helping somebody else is a purely selfish act, my, my old sponsor used to say. And I, I know for sure that that's true. What do you say to your haters and your naysayers? Because I know a lot of people are focused, I'm going to be successful in life just so I can prove all of them wrong. And I have a feeling that back in the day, especially back in the day when you were using, uh, you created a lot of enemies. You have people that are still angry at you because of who you were back then. And, and they have yet to forgive you. And they have yet to be able to move beyond that. And then today, because you're very visible, you're a speaker, you're famous, you're you're friends with Matt Damon, that now makes you very, very visible, which just brings on more opportunities for people to hate you and to troll you and to be a, a naysayer. How do, you, how do you deal with that? And, and how do you advise other people to deal with that? Man, that's such a good question. And it's so hard because I'm, look, I'm, I'm 27 years clean and sober, and I'm still insecure. I still want people to like me. I still want, you know, it's not like a hurtful comment doesn't still uh, dig all the way down to my guts. And, you know, in this, you know, very anonymous world where people can zero in and attack from the safety of their computer in some far off place, you know, it's a dangerous world to be, to be a public person. Because, you know, people can just take pot shots at you. And I, I think, again, I, I go back to what sponsors have said so often. But my second sponsor I ever had, you know, I, I, we had a similar conversation. And I don't remember his exact words, what they were. But in essence, he pointed out the fact that, you know, if I walked into a room and there were 10 people in that room and nine of them loved me, I would spend all day, 24 hours a day, forever focused on the one person that hates me and giving that person all my energy and my focus and trying somehow to convince them of something rather than focusing on the nine people who love me, who I love. And so I I think the way I deal with it now is still that same way. I really don't it's not that I won't have a conversation with somebody who doesn't like me. You know, if, if they express it online and it's someone that I don't know, a stranger, I will almost always reach out privately the first time, even if their comment was public. I'll reach out and say, hey, you know, I sense that you may not be my biggest fan. You know, do you want to you wanna have a private chat about it? And most of the time they won't because their satisfaction is derived from publicly being angry like that's that's what they want to do and if it's social media I just dump the person and and move on it's not worth it if it's an actual friend then this has happened and I I you know I think that one of the lessons I learned a long time ago we all know this but it's not easy to do you know would you rather how's that old saying go would you rather be right or would you rather be happy and I I am certainly a strong-willed, opinionated person. And I will have an argument with anybody over something that's actually important to me, especially if it revolves around human rights, personal rights, you know, anything like that. Gay rights, civil rights, you know, if it's, if it's a, a person's right to live a life 
uh, the best life that they can live the way they want to live it, then I will, I will fight, you know, vehemently for that. And that's where I have to like cut it loose sometimes though, and understand that I can't change everybody's mind. And once in a while I have to accept someone else's differing viewpoint. And only through a lot of years of sobriety have I been able to achieve that. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that sometimes I don't still tell that person, even a friend of mine, hey, look, you know, we need to agree not to talk about this anymore because, <laughs> you know, we're just not going to get anywhere. But I think most important, it, it is just the, the lesson of focus on the people that, that love you. And I mean, gosh, right now, how could that be any more important than it is right now? You know, because we all see where the world is going right now. And coronavirus sort of had this chance to bring us all together, but ultimately it is going to create it's going to continue to create the same divide that we've had here in the U.S. for a while, politically and other ways. And I just refuse to get too caught up in that. You know, I have my stance and my beliefs. I'm not going to spend my days watching the news and being angry at the world because it's not going the way I want it to. But I am going to take actions that help me personally. And the way I do that is to keep it, I have to give it away. So I have to I have to have conversations like this that remind me that other people are out there searching right now for ways to be sober or ways to create a clean water nonprofit or, you know, you don't have to help a million people. If you help one person, you've made a big impact. You don't have to create a nonprofit to do that. You can look out the front door and talk to your neighbor and ask them if they need something and that can change your whole day. Isn't that funny that some people would rather jump on a plane to fly to take care of the poor orphans in Africa than to go across yeah. the street and ask their neighbor what they need. Yeah. I mean, we got people in this country and, and after this, there are going to be so many people that are in need. And the way we're going to get through it together is to reach out and lend a hand in whatever way that we can. I mean, sober people, I know we talked a lot about this, but right now, you know, I've done what I can do to be in touch with as many people as possible because we don't have meetings. Like, there's a lot of Zoom AA meetings, but like, man, there is no group that does more hugging and that needs more skin-to-skin contact, you know, through hugs and kisses and handshakes and you know, than the recovery community, because we're a bunch of lonely folks in general. It's how we got in our, our mess to begin with. So now more than ever, people are isolated. and They're not getting that one-on-one contact. So I, hmm. I do remind people, whether you're sober or not, or, or need to be, <laughs> it doesn't mean you can't reach out to that person who you know might be struggling right now, because, you know, that's how people stay safe and they stay clean and sober and they stay healthy. So you're a dad, you have two sons, you talked about some of the hardship that your kids have had to go through, but you're a big believer in that, that to quote you, most people benefit greatly from fighting through a hard challenge. Uh, And I think a lot of us, again, I have an eight-year-old daughter and I want to protect her from everything. So what, what, what is your advice? What is your belief system and, and your practice on, on how we raise kids with allowing hardships? Man, you know, and like literally I just got goosebumps all over because it it strikes me so hard because I know you and, uh, you know, you send me cute photos of your daughter and like I just, it makes my day sometimes and I can feel the love and the fact that you, but you've, 
you know, you've got in your house this season eight. Is that right? She's eight. Yeah. You've got this eight year old ball of fire, this powerful human being who clearly has a mind of her own and she is going to do what she wants to do. <laughs> and there are going to be some disappointments and there are going to be some hard times. And like, you know, our job as parents is to love them no matter what. And, you know, I got that from my mother for sure, who was a very flawed person who died a few years ago. But the one way she wasn't flawed is there was never a time, despite my crazy ideas and screw ups and successes, there was never a time where she wasn't my biggest fan. And, you know, where she didn't tell me that I was amazing, even if I just finished doing the dumbest thing ever. And I think that as a parent, and I mean, I was talking about my own son, who's now sober a few years. I, I had to watch my son in the depths of his addiction. And the most loving thing that I ever did for him was to let him struggle. Because I just, it doesn't mean like, it didn't mean that I wasn't going to go help him if he was in danger of, of dying. But like he was, as an addict, he was in danger of dying every single day. And like, I couldn't be there every minute. I actually had to, wow, yeah, this is the hardest thing I ever did. I had to accept in my mind and in my life that there was a good chance my son was not going to make it, that he wasn't going to survive it and that I couldn't save him. Just like he couldn't save me when he was born and I was still an addict. You know, I couldn't save him all those years later. I could be there for him to let him know that the minute he was ready to change his life, I was going to be standing right there next to him. And I was never going to stop. But I couldn't stop him from making his own mistakes. And today, as a, a you know, a 28-year-old clean and sober person, the thing he thanks me for most is actually letting him struggle and learn the lessons for himself and not always bailing him out or fixing the mess that he'd made because he had to learn how to fix those messes for himself if he has any hope of, of living a fulfilling life. And I, I know we all as parents, we all that, that famous saying, we know we want, you know, some people say, I, I want my kids to have a better life than I had. And, and, but what does that mean to me? All the things that make me hopefully the good, useful human being that I am all came from the hardest things that I went through. So if I eliminate those hard things for my kids, where are they going to get their lessons? And I think that that's the balancing act that we all as parents, and not just parents, as brothers and sisters, as sons and daughters, as, you know, I mean, we, these relationships are difficult. And if you're always there to save people and to fix a problem, no matter what, as crazy as it sounds, no good comes of that. People have to learn their own lessons. And as a runner, you and I've talked about it, you know, I, I enter a hundred miles or I go run across a desert because it's a controllable situation. I don't mean the suffering I'm going to have is controllable. I mean, I do it. Because I know in a hundred mile run, I'm going to reach a point where I want to quit. And that's the whole reason I'm there. I want to get to that place where I'm sure I can't go any farther. And then I find a way to go farther. 
And we all do that. You know, most people can't relate to it in the sense of like running 100 miles, but you can in your business. How many people in their business have and are saying it right now? I can't go another day. But you will. You will. You just need to not make, we all make poor decisions in the moment very often. And I say to addicts all the time um, and recovering addicts because, you know, we make bad decisions when we're super emotional, when we think there's no chance of success and we make a poor decision. And if we would just let that moment pass, don't say the incredible hurtful thing that you're getting ready to say to that important person in your life. Don't quit the job. Don't kick that person out of your world in that moment because that moment will pass. It's not real. It hurts and it's a hard one. But, you know, the next morning things will look a lot different. And if you didn't relapse or you didn't quit the job or end the relationship, I mean, some jobs and relationships are meant to be ended. (laughs) That'll happen in time. But most of the time, we overreact as human beings, you know, we're too emotional in that moment. And if we let that moment pass by, maybe things will look a little, maybe we'll just do a more graceful job of ending something rather than having it be awful. Gosh, that's such great advice. Brilliant advice. I think a lot of people listening to this, and I know this because there's a lot of women who also listen to this, uh, have been taught to believe that they should never think about themselves, that they're supposed to worry and fix everybody else's problems, take care of everybody else's needs, but never think about their own. And we know that that's, it sounds noble, but it's impossible. It's actually hiding too, right? If you only ever focus on other people, then of course you don't have to focus on yourself. And some of the most giving, wonderful people I've ever known have spent their lives, you know, running nonprofits and whatever, but they in some ways are the most damaged people that I knew because they have their own issues and they, they think that they just do enough amazing things for other people that, you know, their lives are going to be great. And I, I, the most selfless thing that we can do is to be selfish sometimes. And I actually think right now is a perfect time too, because I, I feel intense pressure in this moment, like a lot of people do, to be productive because my life isn't what it normally is. I don't have any speaking gigs. I don't have any, like, I got nothing going on, really. I'm sort of just stuck at home like people. And sure, I've got a book I want to write. I've, I feel guilty a lot of days if I'm not accomplishing something. And my wife actually looked at me a few weeks ago and she's like, you know, it's okay to actually have an unproductive day. <laughs> and, and it was really great to hear in a way. You know, I, I loved, I needed to hear those words and not feel like I always have to be on guard. And I know a lot of the, especially women listening to this, you know, you got responsibilities, you know, you probably the foundation of the family and especially if you have kids at home and all of that. And so I, I know it's easier said than done, but If you can't work on yourself, and if you don't work on yourself, you have no hope of helping other people through hard times. There's a a line in my book, which I even uh, hesitate to say on this uh, podcast, but I will anyway, because it's written in my book. And I had people challenge me, like, do you really want to write that in your book? And I had to think about it. Yeah, I really want the statement. And the statement was, you can't be a bitch for God. And my point being, people think that because they're doing good (laughs) works, so to speak, that they don't have to work on their, their own 
challenges. I remember that line in your book, and, and your book is amazing, and it's filled with nuggets of wisdom, great stories, but I loved that line because it is, it's, look, it takes a provocative line sometimes to get people to really understand a concept, and, you know, we all go through this life judging ourselves. I do it every single day. I judge myself every day. You know, did I accomplish this? Did I, I don't know, whatever it might be. And, and too often still today, I come up short. You know, people, especially in sobriety, have this sense that because I've got a lot of years of sobriety that I somehow figured this out. <laughs> and that is not true. You know, I still, like anybody else, you know, I, I struggle with self-worth. I struggle with my self-esteem. You know, I I don't want to get too deep into my own, you know, parents, but, you know, I was, let's put it this way. I grew up uh, an only child and I was, as we like to say, I was lovingly neglected and, you know, nobody was out to do me harm, but I spent a whole lot of time just sort of raising myself and, you know, and I've carried that through my whole life. It taught me to be a pleaser and to really want more than anything for other people to like me. And, finding a balance somehow in there between uh, wanting to do good in the world, but also wanting to learn more about myself is it's been hard. It's been hard. And I think it's hard for everybody. And I, I, I also, <laughs> I love this conversation. You can tell the concept of sharing the struggle is one that a lot that escapes a lot of people. They think that what they need to show other people is how strong they are all the time. Mm-hmm. And they need to show other people like, this is the way to do it, power through and be tough. You know what? That's not how I feel, you know, and and some days it's how I feel. But if if on another day I'm really struggling, if I put it out there that I'm really struggling and I put that out there to other people and they hopefully what they say is, my gosh, this guy's got all these years sober. He can run 100 miles at a time or whatever, but he's having a hard day today. I think that that helps people way more than projecting this like, I never have an off day, you know, I just- I'm a, I'm a bestseller, I'm, yeah. I'm friends with Matt Damon, I've raised a billion dollars. Yeah, because right. who cares? I mean, right. I mean, it really is that like, sure, I take satisfaction in the fact that I've accomplished a few things, but I still wake up every day going, man, what about what am I going to do today? Like, how am I going to make the world a better place? How am I just going to make my world a better place? And yeah, cool that we can stand around and brag about all the things that we've accomplished and all the things that we're good at. But even with, I'll say with my employees, don't tell me what you're good at. Tell me how you're weak. Tell me where you struggle because that's your area of opportunity. That's when we have the opportunity to have a conversation or to implement training or a mentor that's going to take you to a whole nother level. This is good news if you can share with me how are you weak. And I know that when I share that with other people, and sometimes it's with one-on-one with somebody that, that I need to share, this is how I'm struggling. And sometimes I can share that struggle with the masses. Um, but it's in sharing what you're doing, what you're saying is that you give people hope. And that's the best commodity because even in your lowest depths of addiction, And you shared a story, and maybe there's stories that are worse than that story. If you had a little glimmer of hope, that meant that you could do something, right? Just just hope. Just if you can be the person that sells hope. I I get where you're at, 
but let me tell you what I'm doing. Let me tell you how, what I've accomplished. It's not in a boastful way. It's in, I'm selling you hope. You can do it too. Yeah. You know, I, I love that. I mean, God, you just said it so well right there. And I, I think that I always tell people, if you need proof and you're a social media person, it doesn't matter if you have, you know, 50 followers or 5,000 or 50,000. <laughs> do a post that's like happy and sunshine, right? Things are good. I had a great day. I went for a walk and all that. And see what kind of reaction you get from people. And then a few days later, if you're having a crappy day, get online and say, you know what? It's a real struggle. I actually didn't want to get out of bed this morning and I feel like just quitting and I don't want to be a mom today and I don't, whatever it might be. You put that on there, I guarantee you get like five times the response to that. You know, and, and, and it's because we all relate to struggle. You know, we, we all have those feelings of, God, can I actually get up and do this again today? Some days. And then other days I feel, you know, it seems like I could do anything and, and anything I set my mind to. But, you know, there's no, there's no exact formula except for just continuous forward movement. You mentioned earlier so I've got this expedition series called the 5.8 Global Expedition Series that I've been doing this last period of time in my life. And the whole point is, it's a set of journeys from the lowest places on the planet to the highest points on the planet. So the ultimate journey is going to be from the Dead Sea, which is the lowest elevation on the planet, all the way to the top of Mount Everest. You're going to run that. Yeah, I'm going to not just run it, actually. What's interesting on that one is I'm starting at the Dead Sea in Jordan, and I'm actually swimming across the Dead Sea, and I'm doing a free dive, and I'm going to try to reach the lowest point in the Dead Sea that I can reach just to add a few extra feet to the goal. But when I get out, I'm going to run 2,000 miles across uh, the Arabian Desert and all the way to the tip of Oman, and when I reach Oman, I'm going to get in a kayak and I'm going to paddle a thousand miles across the Indian ocean all the way to India. And when I reach Mumbai, India, I'm going to get on my mountain bike and bike all the way to the base of Mount Everest. And from there, it's only a couple more miles, but they're straight up. You know, from there, I'm going to try to make it to the top of Everest. And the point of this lowest to highest journey is it's the cycle. It's the roller coaster that all of us are on. We spend our lives kind of going from these low places to these high points. And it's typically this roller coaster where we're kind of in the middle gray area. And every day is filled with this never ending series of highs and lows. And it's really the human condition. So I decided that I wanted to do something that would put, you know, a physical task to this idea of going from low places and high points. I call it 5.8 because uh, if everyone can envision this, it's about 4,500 miles from the Dead Sea to the top of Everest. But in fact, it's only 5.8 vertical miles. So straight up and down from the Dead Sea to the top of Everest is only 5.8 miles. And we're all in it together. Like there's every single person listening to this, every single person on the planet lives in this little 5.8 mile sliver of atmosphere that covers the globe. Mm -hmm. And like, 
you know, whether we want to be in it with other people or not, we have no choice. We're all in this same little space together and we need to figure out how to take better care of it. Mm. You obviously believe in the power of physical metaphors. And these are some pretty extreme metaphors. And maybe, maybe you do this, maybe you're trying to take on this challenge of punishing yourself somehow to, to learn the lesson, to see what you can accomplish. But for, for some people right now, what they need to do is clean out their junk drawer. You know, that's the physical mentor of cleaning out your closet, throwing out a bunch of clothing, th- throwing out a bunch of things that don't serve you anymore can be the physical metaphor of throwing out things from your mind that no longer serve you, belief systems that don't serve you anymore. But physically doing it in your closet can be the stepping stone to then be able to do it in your mind and your heart. Man, you nailed it. And I mean, it, it's so satisfying to actually accomplish something. And I, and I think for me, you know, I, I'm a list maker. I wouldn't say I'm all that organized, but I love my lists. And, you know, there's nothing better than marking things off. It just feels good. It feels good. And it, and it does. It haunts me to a certain degree if I, if I don't mark anything off on a day. That I'll, I will tell you the annoying thing about it for me is I'll make a list. And if there's 10 things on there, like we all do this, there's two things on that list of 10 that are really important. And I will avoid those. And I'll do the easy things so that I've made progress. But there's those couple of things that I know I need to do. And I actually have a couple of those right now, actually, on my list that I need to be working on. And I'll, you know, I will get to them and I, I want to take advantage of this time that we have. You mentioned something a moment ago, and I think it's an important, I don't know, for me, it's important. And this idea of punishing myself, I, I, I do get the question often, like, why would you run 100 miles? Or why would you want to go across a, a country or a desert or whatever? And uh the question is its own answer because I, I actually don't know why. Like I, what I know is my life experience has taught me that if I go take on some really hard challenge along the way, I am going to learn lessons that will be valuable to me. The value pretty much never comes in the completion of the task. The value comes, I mean, it's cliche, right? Like we talked about earlier, it's the journey. It's not the destination. So it's all the people I meet along the way, the lessons I learn, the, gosh, the apologies I have to make, <laughs> the, you know, the difficult things along the way. And some of it is still deeply tied to my own lack of self-worth sometimes and the feeling that in some ways I deserve to suffer, that, you know, if I just do this one more really hard thing that I'll finally learn that lesson that will take me over the top. And what actually happens is with each new adventure, uh, maybe I set out to answer a couple of questions and all I end up with is, is more questions by the time I'm finished. But I've accepted the fact through the years that that is not just my condition, that's everybody's condition. You know, I'm never going to wake up one day and say, ah, now I understand. I don't know, maybe if I practiced a little more meditation. What, and, what would the point of that be, though? You know right. what I mean? I mean, because otherwise it's an adventure. Like I look at my daughter, the best gift that my daughter gives me is her sense of curiosity. You know, little kids, they're asking a thousand questions a day. And you, I could get annoyed with that, or I could see that like, wow, I'm on this adventure with her. 
she's sparking in me that sense of curiosity, that, that sense of imagination and, and adventure. To me, that's exciting. To get to the point where you have all the answers, I, no more happiness, thank you very much. Who would ever want to arrive at that? <laughs> well, and she's fully present right now, right? It's we who, as adults who worry about the future. And we sometimes project that worry onto our kids because that's just, you know, that's kind of human nature when the kids are really just worried about right now. Like they're fully present in the moment, which is what we're supposed to be. And as adults, of course, we come with a lot of baggage and we've, we've sort of earned it through the years. And so it's harder to be just present in the moment. But if we can learn from anything from our kids on a daily basis, it's not that they're not supposed to understand consequences, but in reality, most of the time, all they're thinking about is being right there right now. And what they want from us is our attention. And attention is the hard thing. You know, I will fully reveal that I just heard my wife enter the room that I'm in now. And she hears me say these really brilliant, amazing things like be fully present. And in the background, this is what I heard. Hmm. And, <laughs> and I know, in fact, that what that means is, you know, I struggle like anybody else in being fully right. present for my partner and for the person that actually deserves it most in my day, because I'm worried about a lot of other moving parts. And, well, don't, and don't you hate it when our, our family and friends use our own material back on us, right? Oh my gosh. My daughter is like, daddy, are you being bitter right now or better? Daddy, bitter or better? What are you choosing? I'm like, oh my gosh, you're not allowed to say that to me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. I know. That'll teach us to teach our kids cliches. Exactly. They you know, will I, throw I, that back out. I knew. I knew when I heard you speak on the stage. I knew when I went backstage and had to meet you because I've heard other speakers. And I was like, that was great. But I didn't feel like I needed to go back and meet them. I knew that when I, I started ten, sending you text messages and asking you to do this and that and try to build a friendship with you, I knew that there was a reason. I, I knew that it would turn into this and, and into so much more. I'm not going to run across the desert, but I'm so thrilled that I have a friend who did that and has so much to share with me. And I feel like you're open to be on my adventures with me. I feel like as my friend, you're curious and you're interested in what I'm going through too. And that's just, I just can't thank you enough for this, Charlie. Really, no, that's so how I feel too. That's how I feel too. You know, from our first hug, I knew that we would be friends and there's a warmth and generosity with you that is just genuine. And that's what I want. I want as much of that in my life as I can get. And I remind people that you, you've run across your own deserts and you've done all the same things I have. It's just dressed up in different packages and wow. just about everybody out there has too. And, and they should never feel you know, like, oh my gosh, I could never do that, whatever that is, because in fact, you already have, all of us already have, you know, and, and I'm going to probably make some kind of really um, outlandish, bad proposal to you someday that you will inevitably accept and, and you'll do the same to me. And um, through that, we will both learn lessons that we didn't expect to learn. Thanks. Charlie, you're, you're amazing. Do you have a final message for our listeners? 
Man, I think that the final lesson right now is just be gentle with yourself. You know, I mean, it's again, cliche, but it is the idea that I always say what happens to us matters so much less than what we do about it, the action that we take. And just be gentle with yourself, especially right now. But but even when all this crazy time is over, there will be a new challenge, the next challenge. And, you know, stay focused on your goal, your mission, and just continuous forward movement always wins the day and things will work out. Wow. Well, what a journey you've taken us on today. I mean, I have, I have felt every emotion from laughter to just this warmth in my heart to you make me emotional. And of course, I cry during a good episode of Golden Girls. So I don't know how <laughs> much of a compliment that is. So, <laughs> Well, the only ask I have is that this does not replace me being uh, Never. on your stage in person someday. So when that Never. opportunity comes up, I want to be there. You're absolutely going to be there. And this just solidifies. So when people listen to this, they're going to want to meet you the same way I wanted to meet you. And we're absolutely going to make that happen. Thanks, Charlie, for this so much. My pleasure. Thanks to you, too. And I'll, you know, I'll see you soon. And I, I can't wait to meet that little girl of yours in person someday soon. Thanks, Charlie. I love you. Love you, too, dude.